Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. Greetings, greetings. Uh, Good to see you again. Back again. Apparently, you've got some sloshing beer in the background. I'm sloshing a bit of beer myself. The famous flying beer photo taken by a friend of mine. That's famous? Yeah, yeah, locally. In the the greater Lancaster area. The the greater Lancaster area. Oh, well, uh, who, who who took that? Is that like a push? I don't know. It seems like, uh, you know, beer abuse or something. <laughs> Glue the beers to a skateboard, run them down a ramp, and time flash and everything. Stop it and get it to slosh. Yeah. Yeah. You know who's not a an abuser, a beer abuser? Hey, maybe perhaps our good friend John Blickman? That's right. I mean, I've I've never seen him. I've seen him abuse a lot of things. I've seen him abuse himself and other people, but not beer. Not beer. He has a great great deal of respect for beer and care for beer, which is probably why he puts all that effort into creating such great uh, brewing equipment. You know, uh, he also pays for the show, so you don't have to. Uh, so if you get a chance, check out uh, BlickmanEngineering.com. You can even send an email to John uh, uh, Blickman at Blickman Engineering. Uh, just send it to feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. Tell him how much you love this show and that you appreciate that he has paid for this for the past 15 plus years that we've been doing it. So there you go. Uh, or tell them how much you hate it and it's a waste of time and bits on the internet or whatever. Uh, today, uh, we have with us uh, my, my friend and, and uh, former uh, employee at uh, Heretic Brewing Company, uh, uh, Mr. Jonathan Hughes, PhD, UC Davis. Uh, he's uh, going to speak with us about uh, uh, creating a, a quality control program on a budget. Hey, John, how are you doing today? Hey, Jamel, I'm doing great. You look good. You look like you're uh, surviving the pandemic and uh, <laughs> enjoying life. Doing great, yeah. So tell us, you, uh, the, the reason I wanted you on the show is because you're, you're teaching a class at UC Davis, that's available online as well, uh, about uh, creating a quality control program on a, on a budget. Uh, what's, what's that all about? How, how, how yeah. do you start on that? So this is uh, uh, just a, a little one-off uh, kind of webinar. Uh, so I'm, I'm teaching for the Master Brewer Certificate Program that's just wrapping up here next week. Um, and then um, 
just this little one-off webinar. It's going to be uh, what might be the start of a series called Brewing on a Budget. We're still sort of playing around with that title, but um, this is, yeah, starting a QC lab on a shoestring. And um, I just sort of wanted to do this because it seemed like lab was something that was really scary for a lot of brewers. Yep. And I wanted to kind of demystify some of that and show you some of the hacks that I had to do when I was setting up a lab at Heretic um, that worked just as well as some of the uh, really expensive scientific equipment out there that you can find. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and you say webinar, a little webinar, uh, but it's three hours, right? Yeah, it's three hours long. So, and, and that's not going to be me yapping at you for three full hours. You know, we'll take breaks and we might break out and, and do some discussions and stuff, but well, you're, getting, um, you're getting your money's worth. I think it was 75 bucks for three hours of, uh, I think that's, I think that's a deal. I don't think you're going to find that kind of uh, information uh, uh, that cheap uh, anywhere on the web. So uh, I recommend people check that out. Um, now, what what's the first steps, though? If somebody wants to, you know, let's say I've got a, a small brew pub and uh, or, you know, just a, you know, a small brewery, five barrel and a tasting room. How do I get started in, in quality assurance? I, you know, I know of even larger breweries, breweries our size, heretic size, that don't have a lab. Yeah, absolutely. The number one thing that I always tell people, and this is a quote from Adam Savage of Mythbusters fame, that the difference between screwing around and science is writing it down. And this is what I always used to, to joke with the brewers at heretic with is if they were writing something down on a on a um clipboard they were doing science mm -hmm. and so number one thing is just write everything down and then you can track your progress make sure uh you know if you change something see what the results of that change were i'm a huge believer in that you know without any sort of data you you have no idea what you're doing you you don't really know what your last batch was versus the one that you're doing today. You know, you're just, you're just messing around. So yeah, I like, I like that quote. So that's, that's cheap. That's easy. That's pencil and paper or mm -hmm. you know, a Google doc or whatever. Uh, so you can share it with, with others if you need. I think that's a great idea. So that's cheap. That's easy. What's, what sort of things should people be writing down? I mean, everything from uh, recipe, if something changes, if you've changed your supplier for hops, yeast, malt, whatever, um, what the, uh, you know, track the progress of your fermentation, right? Take your gravities two, three times a week, take your pHs, write all of that down. And then if something goes wrong in a fermentation, you can sort of go back, compare that against previous batches and say, Hey, look, the pH didn't really drop quite as quickly on this batch, you know, so what happened? And then you can look at what you wrote down about your yeast pitching. And if you're counting yeast and measuring their viability, you can kind of track that on there as well. So yeah, just, I mean, everything that has to do with the progress of the fermentation of the beer. Yeah, that's, that's huge. I'm, I'm a big believer in that because you can, you can track, you could graph, your your ph and your gravity readings and batch after batch after batch you know on on a beer uh you know on on a lot of beers will be very similar 
And on a specific beer, they should be, you know, exactly the same or you know, really close to the same. And if you see a, a beer start to swing differently than, than that path, you know, some, you already know something's wrong. You know, before you get to the packaging stage, which is expensive, you know that you potentially have quite a problem. So, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, everybody should be able to take pH readings, gravity readings, and uh, I know breweries that don't have the ability to take pH readings as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's pretty cheap. You know, uh, it's less costly than, than, than a batch of beer. Um, I, I think when a lot of people think, you know, QA, QC, they're thinking, oh, it's, you know, lab stuff with chemicals and glassware and, you know, microscopes. What, what sort of things should people be doing there? Or is there other things they should do that are easier than that or simpler than that? Well, I think that sort of the next step, um, even before we get into any labware or anything like that, is just coming up with a good uh, sensory program and um, training yourself to be able to uh, detect defects and differences in your beers. So being able to look at a beer and note the color, the clarity, uh, being able to taste any differences in bitterness, um, being able to taste any of the off flavors. And I always, always uh, advocate for these sensory training kits that you can buy where they've got purified um, off flavor compounds that you can spike into beer mm -hmm. and then you can taste, you can get that hydrogen sulfide rotten egg flavor. You can get the acetaldehyde green apple flavor. And it's actually really fun. Uh, you can do this as a sort of team building exercise with your brewery, get all your staff, you know, I mean, not just back of the house, but get your front of the house people in there as well. And everyone get together and they can all talk about, oh my God, that butyric acid tasted like vomit, you know, and it's kind of fun. It's a little bit of a bonding experience, but at the same time, you're learning how to pick out those flavors. Cause I think one of the most important things about sensory is really just getting a vocabulary and being able to put words to those flavors. Cause you know, I mean, people taste beer and they say, yeah, it tastes like beer. But then when you say, yeah, but do you get that little bit of, uh, you know, grapefruit on the hops? And then they say, oh yeah, you know, I did get that grapefruit. And then from then on out, that little note is sort of stuck in their brain. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another good point is train up all your, your people in, in at least some of the basics or make them aware of, you know, quality as it, uh, relates to, uh, you know, the sensory aspects, absolutely, uh, critical and, and again, cheap, those sensory kits are, have become more, more and more readily available. They get them through your, your, uh, you know, your malt suppliers, your, your BSG, your, uh, uh, country malt people like that. You can get them and you can get them through, uh, the MBAA. Can't you, John? Yeah, yeah I believe you can. My other John, I've got lots of Johns. That's always <laughs> one of my problems is I have a lot of Johns. You could just call me Dr. Hughes to distinguish if you want. <laughs> it works for me. Um, all right. Uh, yeah. Uh, so Dr. Hughes, uh, <laughs> what would uh, be some of the next steps somebody should take? So next step, I think, is, uh, you know, maybe now starting to get into some equipment. 
but it doesn't need to be, uh, you know, I mean, in my, in my webinar, you're going to see, I'm going to do like the sort of Yelp, you know, $1 sign, $2 signs, $3 signs kind of moving up. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we can start out with just some really basic lab glassware and um, kind of test tubes and things like that. And if you don't have any kind of a situation where you can, um, you know, you don't have running water in your lab or anything like that, you can get disposable um, pre-sterilized tubes. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't advocate for that just from an environmental standpoint, but if that's sort of where you are right now and you're waiting to get a full lab set up, then that's a good place to start. And so you get these plastic tubes that are sterilized by gamma radiation and you can just pop them open and, and collect your sample right away. Um, if you do want to start going towards some reusable glassware and things like that, you are going to want to have a way of sterilizing your equipment. And so the standard in a laboratory is what's called an autoclave. Um, and it's basically like a giant pressure cooker. So it brings your temperature up to uh, 120 degrees Celsius, which is I think 251 Fahrenheit and um, uses steam and pressure. So it's about one bar, I think 15 PSI or so of pressure. Um, and you run that for 15, 20 minutes, depending on, you know, if you've got large volumes of liquid, you can increase the time on that. But, um, and that will sterilize your equipment beyond just the uh, kind of boiling um, or heating uh, up to 100 Celsius. And, yeah, you know, an autoclave, gonna, it's, sorry. Uh, I was, <clears throat> excuse me, I was going to ask about the autoclave. You say a giant pressure cooker. Uh, explain exactly how big a typical lab autoclave might be and what kind of money we're talking. Yeah, so um, you can get, I mean, they come in all sizes. What you might see in a, um, in a smaller lab in a brewery would be something that's maybe, um, uh, I guess, a few gallons in, in volume. Um, and you can get these, um, you know, maybe about, say, a foot wide and maybe two feet deep, kind of a cylindrical shape. They're usually horizontally um, laid out. Uh, you can get these for a few thousand dollars. You can find them kind of secondhand for maybe five hundred dollars. Um, yeah, but eBay's your friend there. eBay, uh, and you can get them, and you know they horizontally lay them out because a lot of them are for surgical implements, dental tools, things like that, tattoo parlors. One of the things I did as a home brewer was I got a uh, American canner. Uh, they make uh, pressure cookers that are out of like a single piece of milled aluminum and they make them huge and they make them with, uh, you know, electrical heating elements on the bottom and they'll hold massive amounts of stuff. If you want to, you know, uh, and more brewery size stuff, if you've got like a large flask that you want to do, um, it'll hold multiples of those. So those are good. Those, but again, that, that can run up to uh, 800,000 bucks and that's new, but uh, yeah, you can get used stuff down, you know, 200 bucks uh, or less. Um, one of the things when you're talking about the plastic uh, uh, sampling, um, I used to make uh, uh, Chris Kennedy do when we first started was I, I got world pack bags. You can get them really cheap and uh, it's essentially uh uh, plastic, a sterile plastic bag that you can collect a sample in and we'd collect wort off the heat exchanger, you know, cold wort. Uh, and then you just whirl the, the bag to seal it. And then 
we'd see, we'd just put it somewhere warm and see if it generated gas, whether there was, you know, and that was one of our very first tests. That was one of our very simple tests that we did back when we were uh, first starting out. Yeah. And that, that's a really simple way. I mean, I know larger breweries that are, you know, have a full lab that are still using roll pack bags just because it's so easy to have that out in the brewery you can just grab a bag, you know, tear off the top and, and fill it. And just that forced wort test, just make sure you don't have any, um, any turbidity showing up, any uh, CO2 being produced uh, would be indication of some kind of wort contamination. Um, and then if you, if you really want to, you can crack that open later on and, and stick your nose in it and smell it. Um, if you are worried about maybe some enteric bacteria or anything like that, you're going to get some of those, um, volatile fatty acid, butyric acid, um, flavors and aromas coming out of there. So, um, I would say don't sniff too hard. Don't taste it because there are some potential pathogens that can survive in wort, but not in beer. So, um, yeah, but, uh, real quick to go back to the autoclave. Uh, one little hack that I think is um, I'm, I've been telling everybody is there is a relatively new instant pot called the instant pot max that actually will get up to a full 15 PSI of pressure. And so um, they talk about this as using it as a pressure canner uh, for some of your foods that are uh, higher pH, but that is exactly what we want as an autoclave. And you can get this for about 150 bucks. It's not huge. You're not going to be able to fit a ton of glassware um, or anything in there. But if you're just doing a couple things here and there, you can just set it and, and go. Um, and that's a really great way. You know, it's self-contained. You plug it in and it's ready to go. So, yeah, that's one, kind of one of the, the cheap, cheap tricks that I like to um, push a little bit. There you go. Well, and it, it's so simple to use that it doesn't matter if it can, if it, uh, you, know, you have to do multiple cycles or something. It, the cycles are pretty easy. It'll hold a fair amount. And, and then uh, you don't have to, uh, you know, really watch it that, you know, like some of the, some of the other ones, um, like the American canner, if it doesn't have the actual controlled heating element, you have to kind of watch the amount of heat you're putting in. But the Instapot's a great idea. And I bet you can get some used too. Sure. Come Christmas, get yourself that. You know, if you're doing plates, all, all other stuff. All right. So let's say you're you're uh, setting up a lab. What what kind of tests should you be doing? I, I guess that's the hardest part for people. They yeah, that's they can write stuff down, they can collect some information, they should be collecting temperatures, gravities, pH. Uh, they should do, be doing perhaps force wort tests, uh, force ferment tests. Those are fairly easy to do. Uh, you know, once they are kind of, I think that transition into lab equipment and testing in the lab, that's where they start to kind of break down. Yeah. So, um, and especially, you know, if you're looking through some of these, uh, some of this literature out there, um, you look at Mary Pelletieri's book on, on quality uh, assurance, and it can be really overwhelming. There's a lot of tests that you can do. And you don't need to do all of those. And I, yeah, I like to lay out sort of a uh, priority list. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think forced wort, 
test, making sure you're not getting contamination in your chilling. Uh, forced fermentation, you brought up, Jamel, is a great one and really easy to do. doesn't even require uh, you to sterilize any glassware or anything. But um, what this involves is you, you get a sample of your wort and then uh, a sample of your yeast that you're going to pitch into that beer. And then you pitch yeast into there at about 10 times the rate that you would be pitching into a beer. And uh, then you actually have a magnetic stir bar in there and you get this on a stir plate and you're basically, it's almost like you're making a starter here. But what your goal is, is to find out what your terminal gravity is going to be for that wort. And so if you have a beer that seems to get stuck somewhere in the fermentation, it doesn't get to what you have thought your terminal gravity should be. You can check against what your forced fermentation is. And then you can determine if that problem came from your yeast in fermentation, or if it came from the hot side of things, if you uh, messed up your temperature on the mash, because if you mashed uh, way too high, uh, or you did something that kind of messed up some of your malt enzymes, you're going to not get that full attenuation. And uh, that will show up in your first forced fermentation as well as in your tank. Yeah, it'll tell you you're, you've uh, kind of, you know, you may have hit terminal gravity and you may be wondering why it didn't finish out. And then it's like, no, oh, okay, so we did hit terminal gravity the problems elsewhere in our, our work production or oh, we didn't even come close and the problems in fermentation. So right there, you isolate your problem or at least uh, have an idea where. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll have more about uh, building your, your QC program on the budget right after this. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're talking with uh, Dr. Jonathan Hughes from uh, UC Davis uh, and He's the one who set up our quality assurance program here at uh, Heretic Brewing. And uh, he's got a webinar coming up on uh, doing a QC program uh, on, the, on uh, a budget. What's the address for that people can uh, sign up for? That is uh, cpe.ucdavis.edu slash section slash 
brewing-budget-quality-control. But if you just go to the cpe.ucdavis.edu, you should be able to find it there you on go. there. And that's $75 for a three-hour seminar. Um, it will be June 3rd to Thursday from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Now, if people miss the webinar, can they uh, get it, uh, you know, a recording of it later on? I know it will be recorded and the recording will be available for a short time to the people who have enrolled. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think that means you have to have watched it live to be able to access that, but you will have to enroll prior to the there you go. Um, air date. Okay, good to know. So yeah, make sure you sign up ahead of time. It's going to be worth it. I know Jonathan and I know uh, the information is going to be priceless. And for 75 bucks towards uh, quality in your brewery, uh, you should spend it. Well, and you're also, uh, you're, you're consulting uh, for breweries now. That's correct. Yeah, I've uh, um, started a little business here. I'm um, sort of jokingly referring to myself as the beer doctor. I know that JP used to call himself that, but um, we'll have to fight over that title. I think, I think but, you, um, you were in that title more than he does. So <laughs> other than JP likes going to the doctor. Uh, yeah. That's as close as he gets to being a doctor. So, so yeah, but you can, uh, you can uh, email me at uh, phd at gmail.com. And uh, I'll try to answer any questions you have. If you want to set up a consult, um, we will be able to get something going. There you go. All right. Check it out. So uh, before the break, we had talked about um, uh, doing forced ferment and things like that. Uh, and then, you know, what's, what's the, the next steps for somebody? What, what should they be uh, doing in the lab? Probably checking for some uh, common contamination. And um, that usually involves some kind of selective and differential media, growth media. So uh, one of the big ones is looking for lactic acid bacteria. So lactobacillus and pediococcus. And fortunately, uh, this guy named Shu came up with a really good medium that will grow specifically lactobacillus and pediococcus. It'll also actually grow Britannomyces. So that will help um, if you are looking for that contamination. And this is uh, what's called a semi-solid auger. So it's um, auger is a kind of a gelling agent used to make microbiological media. And this is semi-solid, so it's kind of soft. And um, you, you actually get this in a state where it is still molten, but cool enough that it's not going to kill any of your organisms. And um, you just put one milliliter of beer into nine milliliters of this um, HLP medium, as it's called. And then you sort of gently rock the tube back and forth. They refer to them as shake tubes, but you don't really want to shake too hard or else you get a lot of foam. So you just rock that back and forth and then you let that grow for about two to three days um, at about 30 degrees Celsius. That is... Um, in American, actually, I don't really know what that temperature is. All the incubators are usually set in Celsius. Like yeah. And that actually brings up a really good point. Incubators are expensive and heavy and sometimes difficult to attain. Um, again, you can find them on uh, eBay. You can find them on a lot of universities actually have surplus stores. 
so at UC Davis, it's called Aggie Surplus. It used to be called the Bargain Barn. Um, and they will sell a lot of kind of used scientific equipment to the public um, for pretty cheap. That said, an incubator can still run you a lot of money. They can also still require a lot of uh, energy to use, take up a lot of space. You know, I mean, space is at a premium in a brewery, um, especially if you've got a lab that's kind of in a closet somewhere. So uh, a really good way of um, creating a, an incubator without having to use up all that space or spend all that money. And this is the first one that I had um, at the Heretic lab was um, I had a brew belt. That's a, a, a fermenter wrap with a little heating element that you can plug into a temperature controller uh, if you're trying to ferment your home brew at colder than normal fermentation temperatures. So I had one of those, and I just put that inside of a styrofoam fishing cooler that you got for a dollar at a gas station, and then plugged that into a Renko temperature controller set for 30 degrees Celsius. And that did the trick, you know, so that whole thing put together, uh, I don't know how much a Renko temperature controller runs these days, but, you know, if you are savvy enough, you can wire up an SDC 1000. Um, those run about, I think, $20, $25. And so you can put this whole thing together for less than $50. And um, that works great. Mm -hmm. Also, if you are uh, familiar You're with um, Terry Farendorf. <laughs> so uh terry farendorf put together this primer uh this is one of the things that i got um uh, that got me going in the lab and she created uh a design for a, a similar kind of thing she used a just an incandescent light bulb as the heat source in a uh um plastic like igloo cooler or something so um Check that out. I think she was at Triple Rock Brewing, and she has this PDF freely available online. Um, I can also maybe see if I can provide a link to that somewhere. But um, great, great resource. She talks a lot about um, HLP medium in detecting Pediococcus and Lactobacillus, uh, as well as creating a sort of log system for tracking any contamination across different fermenters. So again, back to the writing things down, um, it can be really useful to write things down in a very useful way, you know, and instead of just having a, everything on successive pages of a notebook, you can create log sheets, keep them um, electronically online and then searchable in that respect, uh, and then being able to kind of reference back to them. So if you are getting contamination frequently, and it's always in the same fermenter, maybe you should start looking at some seals, uh, looking at if there's any leaks or anything on that. Right, uh, for every batch. And uh, one of my favorite cheap uh, incubation areas is on, on the top of a refrigerator or to the side of the refrigerator where they blow the heat out the back of the refrigerator you know, to keep it cool. And either it, it tends to go up around the top of the refrigerator it tends to come out the side depending on where the refrigerator is and it's, it tends to be a nice warmer area it tends to be like 20 degrees uh, fahrenheit warmer than uh, the surrounding room 
And that often is really close to a good uh, incubation temperature as well. Yeah, I remember that, that styrofoam cooler incubator <laughs> back in the day. That's a good way to start. So the HLP, going back to that, you can just buy this stuff pretty much uh, done for you, right? Uh, same with most of the plates. They come, you can buy pre-poured plates. You can buy uh, tubes, all this stuff. What do you have to do with them to, to get them ready to go when, if, if you buy this stuff from somebody? So yeah, if you buy the plates or tubes, um, you can basically just uh, hit the ground running. With the tubes, you will need to boil them uh, to sort of melt the auger that's in there. Uh, for some of the plates we'll talk about in a little bit, um, you know, you want those to stay solid and everything. So they're just ready to use. Um, but you can also, uh, as a cheaper alternative, you can purchase this media as a powder that you can then hydrate, dissolve in water, boil that. So with the HLP medium, it's specifically designed to not need to be autoclaved. So it doesn't need to be sterilized in that autoclave. You can just boil it for two minutes and then um, cool it down. And um, the best way to do that is with a water bath. So you can uh, dispense this into your tubes and then submerge those in a water bath that you set at uh, 40 degrees Celsius, which is about 110, I think, Fahrenheit. And that will keep that auger molten, but bring the temperature down low enough that you're not going to worry about killing any of those organisms and getting a false negative. Right. So water baths, again, scientific equipment can be really um, expensive and difficult to find, but um, a recirculating sous vide heater uh, can do exactly that for you and you just go. have that in some sort of temperature uh, um, incubated, you know, a cooler or a pot or something and you're good to go. If you want to cook some chicken or a steak in, in your sous vide at the same time, you can. Perfect. And you can get those sous vide uh, recirculators uh, on Amazon cheap. Yeah, I think the cheapest ones are under $100. So not so bad. Yeah. Uh, no, that's good. That's a good point. That's a good point as well. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the people I've talked to that want to set up a lab, a lot of times they're, they're just really nervous about, you know, putting something in a tube or, you know, plating something. And so, you know, it's, you can go ahead and start with, you know, a pre pre-done media and tubes and just do that and then just try it. And then once you see the value of it, you can, you know, buy your media, you know, uh, dry and, and prepare it and try that as your next step. It's not that difficult. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. If you can, if you can brew beer, I think you can do a lot of these lab things. And I know so many breweries that tell me, well, we taste our beer. We know that it's good. We know that there's no contamination. It's like, you're just, you have no clue. You really don't know. I, when we started out, we got pitches of yeast from some other breweries that I respect. And I think they make great beer, but they were fully contaminated. They had, so much bacteria and wild yeast in them. It was just like, oh my God, this is a huge problem. That's why I, I decided to never take yeast from anybody because it, I was just shocked. And these were people that, you know, were producing a lot of beer, 
um, I appreciated that they're willing to loan me yeast, but um, it was a giant mistake. If somebody is not testing their beer for contamination, wild yeast, bacteria, they it's it's in their beer. I I guarantee you. I don't care how careful you are. Every once in a while, it can happen, and when it does, if you don't catch it, it then is in every beer you make. So all you people without a lab, you need to be doing some basics. Oh, that's a that's a great point, Jamil. Um, you can you can have contamination without the sensory effects uh, being evident. You know, you can have some contaminating organisms growing at low enough levels that you're not detecting them, but they're still there and they're going to be spread through just waiting for an opportunity to take hold. You know, if that comes in where you pitched your yeast at a temperature that was a little too high for them, then some of those uh, more thermotolerant microbes are going to be able to sort of take hold and uh, really run havoc, uh, wreak havoc, excuse me. So yeah, testing is going to be able to, to allow you to identify that contamination really before it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Now, and this is, this is kind of where um, like Charlie Bamforth likes to uh, run a, or uh, he, he likes to make a distinction between quality control and quality assurance and quality control is very much retrospective a problem has occurred, how do we resolve that? Whereas quality assurance is prospective, how do we prevent this problem from occurring and therefore not have to deal with it? Mm-hmm. Right. And so what would be your next step after uh, you know, doing, doing, uh, these tests. So it, let's do this. Let's take another short break. And when we come back, I want to hear about exactly, um, you know, what, what would, you know, at what point do you need a microscope? We'll be back right after this. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're speaking with uh, Jonathan Hughes uh, of UC Davis. Uh, he uh, has a webinar coming up about uh, uh, quality uh, programs on a budget. And I think that's perfect for every brewery out there, and especially the smaller breweries that are just starting out. They think that it's too much that they need, you know, giant labs and hoods and, you know, laser beams and things like that, when all they really need is a few pieces of equipment that, and, and, and the desire to, to uh, you know, provide quality. Uh, so, you know, everybody associates like a microscope with, with a lab. When, when do you need a microscope, John? Yeah, great question. Uh, I would say as early as you can afford one. Um, and what's nice is that there's some uh, perfectly decent microscopes out there for $75. 
you know, new, not to mention the ones that you can get for uh, cheaper at a surplus store and things like that. And what's nice about the kind of microscope you need in a brewery is you don't need something really fancy. You don't need phase contrast. You don't need confocal or anything like that. A bright field microscope is really all you need. I mean, phase contrast is going to give you a little bit better distinction if you're looking at some smaller and if you're really trying to do some uh, cell morphology based identification, looking at the cell shapes and, and trying to go from there. But bright field is really what you need if you're going to um, just be interested in testing your yeast viability. And uh, you also don't need crazy uh, magnification. So most microscopes, you tend to have kind of three objective lenses on there that will go um, 40x, 400x, and 1000x uh, magnification. Now, the ob objective will be labeled 4x, 40x, and 100x because there's a 10x magnification on the ocular. But um, you don't even need that 100x objective for 1000x magnification uh, to look at your yeast. They're large enough that 40X, um, or excuse me, 400X magnification will be fine. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so if you're looking to do some counting on your yeast, you can get it yourself a hemocytometer. Used to be these things were $150, $200, um, but uh, you can find them now on Amazon for I think $20 uh, is the cheapest one. Now there's some pretty um, pretty bad ones out there. So you got to be a little careful um, where the etching is not as good. But so this is like a special microscope slide that's got a grid etched into it. And uh, it's got a special cover slip. So you put your yeast sample on there, you put that cover slip on the top, and then the space between the etching and the cover slip is referred to as the counting chamber, and it's got a defined volume. And so then you can count the number of yeast cells in that volume, and that gets you the number of cells per milliliter with a uh, multiplication factor there. And so that, that way you can kind of pull a sample of your yeast slurry, figure out how much you have, and then figure out how much you're going to want to add into your beer based on your pitching rate um, and all of that. And then at the same time as this, you can do a quick uh, viability stain with this stain called methylene blue. Uh, this stuff, you can get a bottle of this for, I don't know, $25 or something. And it's like a lifetime supply. It usually comes in a 1% solution and you need a 0.01% solution for your yeast uh, and a very small amount of that. So you're diluting this quite a bit every time you uh, do your uh, yeast counting. And this will just stain them. Um, it's, the, it's the kind of dye that gets uh, pulled into the yeast cell and if the yeast is alive, it will reduce that dye. So it's a blue colored dye and they will reduce it so that it looks clear. So when you're looking at this under a microscope, all the clear cells are alive or viable. And then all the blue cells will be considered non-viable. John, I have one question um, regarding the microscope. Uh, I assume you're talking about light microscopes, optical microscopes. What about the USB, you know, computer microscopes available these days? Do those work? That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and those might even be better from a brewing standpoint because uh, you can plug that directly into a computer and it's a little easier to look at um, on a computer screen and you can just uh, save that file again. And right. 
and uh, as part of the sort of writing things down so you can go back and say hey what was our cell count on that one like i forgot to write it down and you can go back and look at that image so yeah and you can get these uh it comes in two ways some where the microscope doesn't even have an eyepiece uh, it's just got a uh kind of a ccd digital camera attached on the top of it um, some of them it has it where you can just slide a, um, a usb connected camera over the top of your uh, eyepiece so you can kind of feel like a real scientist if you want and still look through the eyepiece but when you want to plug it into your computer you can get a, a nice image there yeah if you can get you know 400x uh, magnification uh you're all good to go that's kind of the gold standard then 400x yeah that's yeah that's what you need for yeast work okay yeah because if you when you get up to a thousand x magnification you actually need what's called immersion oil because of the light properties with these lenses and um i don't even know if you can fit because a hemocytometer is a really really thick microscope slide and i think it might be too thick to fit underneath that um objective lens so i've never seen anyone use a hemocytometer with that thousand x magnification just with the 400 x okay yeah when you're looking for what bacteria and stuff like that then you you use the uh the thousand magnification and yeah bacterial cells are, are much smaller so it's much easier to look at at the higher magnification level and if you're trying to look at for you know what are they rods cones what kind of, if you're trying to figure out what kind of bacteria you're dealing with but there's other ways of doing that right you can there's uh, uh, uh media in the lab you can use to discern one or the other isn't that correct john Absolutely. And, and in fact, microscopic identification is not really that useful uh, when it comes to bacteria. I mean, yes, two kind of major bacterial cell shapes that you see are um, rods and um, spheres or cocci. But there are so many different possibilities within each of those. Um, and yes, you can do some staining and things like that, but there's much easier, faster ways of doing identification, um, special media that's, uh, selective or differential. So selective meaning it will only allow certain organisms to grow. Differential will allow many different ones, but will make different organisms appear differently on that. Um, and then you can uh, also do a, a number of really simple tests. So there's one that's a super simple test called the catalase test. And this is something that can be used to identify the acetic acid bacteria. So these are the ones that are um, aerobic, oxygen requiring contaminants of your beer. And so they have an enzyme called superoxide dismutase um, that you are looking for here. Uh, that wiring you, contaminants of your beer. You are uh, exposing them to hydrogen peroxide and it's a very visible result. They'll create bubbles of oxygen gas if they are catalase positive. And so that can be something that's really quick. You know, it, it would take five seconds to just um, scrape some of these bacteria onto a microscope slide and then squirt some hydrogen peroxide on there. And um, yeah, you can do a gram stain if you want. That's going to be a little more involved, requiring some uh, different dyes and um, iodine and things like that. You can 
do a um, oxidase test. So this is going to require a special reagent, but uh, easily attainable, um, but also will be something that is, uh, you get results in just a few seconds. Uh, Rich was asking, he says, there's lots of stock, lots of talk about stir plates beating up yeast. I don't think that's an issue. Uh, is there such a thing as tilting, rocking a device to keep it moving, but more gently? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I would second your thought. I don't know if a uh, stir plate is really going to do a lot of damage to the yeast cells, but you know, you can get, um, orbital shaker tables, you can get rocker tables. So, um, all kinds of lab equipment that is useful for, um, or that can be repurposed for kind of growing up yeast and things like that. So, yeah, again, I would check with surplus stores at universities. Um, you can check on eBay, Alibaba, whatever you want. That's what I got a lot of our stuff on eBay and, you know, for like five bucks, I would get like a shaker table and it just, the, the rubber belt inside, it's like a kind of like a drive belt uh, you know, had broken and that was all that was wrong with it. And for, you know, 50 cents, I bought a giant O-ring on, you know, on McMaster car and there you go. The problem solved still working today. So, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of opportunity there. Absolutely. And then, you know, I think the, the homebrewers listening will probably also be somewhat familiar with the computer fan stir plate. Uh, you can, you can purchase a computer fan for pretty cheap, get some rare earth magnets, um, kind of glue them on there and then hook that up to a, uh, potentiometer, um, put it in a cigar box. You can get, uh, stir plates on eBay now, uh, because of the popularity of homebrewing and they're 20 bucks for a really nice stir plate or, yeah, I, I just bought a really nice heated, uh, stir plate with RPM and temperature for, I think it was 50 bucks. I don't know. <laughs> there's, there's a bunch available. I'll tell you, you know, they also have a lot of this gear up at uh, brew chatter up in, uh, sparks, Nevada, right next to Reno. Uh, good folks there, RJ and Josh, check them out. Brewchatter.com. Great folks. And they've got a lot of, uh, the gear that, that, uh, you need to, uh, perfect your home brewing. And, uh, you know, a lot of good information. Good folks. Check them out. All right. Uh, let's take one more break. And when we come back, we'll wrap up talking about uh, quality assurance in the brew after this. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Jonathan, for uh, being here with us and uh, talking about, uh, you know, lab stuff. There's there's so much to cover. I can see why your your webinar is three hours because there's a lot of questions people have and a lot of stuff people want in an hour with, with breaks and everything. Uh, so if somebody's setting up a lab... Uh, what else should they know? Or if somebody's just getting what, started, yeah. what else should they know? What, what, what are Which the tests are they focus on? What, what do you think is the most important of the, you know, beyond the, beyond the super basics, what, what should they go for next? 
I mean, I would say uh, the the next in line from all of this would be to consider getting uh, what's called a spectrophotometer. And this is going to be a little bit, we're getting up into the $2 sign range here. Um, but you can get these on online new for two to three thousand dollars. Now, if you want some of the higher end ones, they can get up to ten thousand dollars, but you don't necessarily need that. Um, but this is the kind of instrument that's going to uh, be able to actually give you an IBU measurement. It's going to give you a color measurement. Um, you can even use it for clarity. Um, as well as um, there's a diacetyl, a colorimetric diacetyl test. Um, so this is like, I, it's kind of an advanced piece of equipment, but because it's such a workhorse in the lab, um, I always recommend this is the kind of next step because it's, it can be used for so many things. And there are, um, I'm sure, numerous other tests that are relevant in a brewing lab that can be done with this. I, our first one I got from uh, Sierra Nevada. It was their first spectrophotometer. I still have it. And if there's a brewery out there that wants to wants to carry this piece of history forward, I'd be willing to part with it now that you know, we haven't used it in such a long time. Um, He'll also accept requests from a museum. Yeah, from a museum as well. Uh, but I, I think that cost me like 150 bucks. Um, I think the next one we got, I think you got at the, at the surplus at UC Davis. Um, but the, the thing to look for if you're, uh, getting one is that it's a UV spectrophotometer, uh, cause you'll need that, that range for the type of tests you do at a brewery. That's uh, right. But you want, you want the UV one capable of UV, UV light. And the, the things that wear out on them is like the bulb. And that's pretty much it. If the thing powers up, it's good. And then you just need a bulb. Uh, all right. Yeah, that's good. And then uh, one more time, uh, how do people reach you if they uh, want to get some uh, consulting advice on uh, setting up a lab or anything brewing-wise? Yeah, you can email me at uh, Dr dot beer phd at gmail.com there you go well thank you uh, jonathan uh, again everyone he was the person that really set up our lab here at heretic and and helped us get started and and labs a huge huge thing for us and really is the reason why we can make uh, great beer in fact I'll tell you, you know, uh, one of the things on pitching yeast, we always had the lab pitch the yeast for the brewery because it was such an important part of brewing and we needed somebody in control of that, that really knew, uh, you know, cell counts and everything. You know, I think that was a, a big, big part of our improvement program over the years. I, today, I'm very proud to say today we brew better beer than we did when we started. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, it's vastly improved. And the beer back then, it wasn't bad, uh, but I think it's much, much better today. And Jonathan, you're a big part of that. So I appreciate that. 
All right, everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, make sure to uh, support our uh, sponsors, Blickman Engineering, BlickmanEngineering.com. Send an email to feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. Tell John Blickman how much you appreciate his support uh, over the years. And then uh, Brute Chatter, check them out. If you're ever up near Reno, uh, stop by their shop. Great shop. You can get pints of beer while you, while you check out all the goodies and uh, chat with uh, two of the nicest guys in the homebrew uh, world, uh, RJ and Josh. Tell them I sent you. They'll, they'll be very happy to see you. Uh, Till then, everybody, brew strong. Brew strong, everyone.